Wow, like I love that music. Anybody else like, like you love that music? Like I love it so much. Like it, it truly is like maybe like the best 14 seconds of my day, like on Sundays. Like, like I mean, it, it is awesome, especially compared to my preaching. So like I want to do it one more time. Like y'all play it for me one more time. Just like, come on. Okay, no, 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 no. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I, I just, I don't need to do that. You know what I'm talking about? And it's not because I can't. It's kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. It's, it's not because it's not permissible. It's because it's not beneficial. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so I realize that. I will repent later for all you conservatives in here. But, like, I just, I love it, man. I love it. I, lo- I love it. And so uh, if I was in my house, we would just keep doing it, you know. But since I'm not... We're going to move on, okay? Um, And so, hey, we are in the last week of this series um, called Bust a Move, okay? Uh, Don't put that on Facebook, by the way, okay? (laughs) It's all I was running through my mind. Like, don't put that. Uh, So, Bust a Move, this week four, and here's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about how easy it is for us to become isolated and marginalized in our relationships, And so the only goal of this series, when we started planning it for eight or nine weeks ago, was to simply help people to take one tangible step. So like if you're at point A, our goal is to move to point B. And we realized that that could be different for a variety of people. And so in here, if you're wanting to connect to God, for some of us, you're in here and you say, I don't believe in God. I'm not sure that he's real or that he exists. And so our goal is for you to take a step in gathering information and seeking him. And the reason why is because we know the scriptures say that God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the number of your days. Matthew says that he knows the number of hairs on your head. But the goal is, is for you to come to know God. And so if you're here and you say, I know God, the goal is not simply to know God, but to go God fully. And so how do you begin to take a step towards knowing God fully? And as we begin to know God, we see in his word that his desire is not simply for us to have a relationship with him and somehow live on an island or to be the idea of a monk in a monastery. And so that's what a monk would do. They would be in a monastery. They thought, if I could remove myself from the world somehow, then it would be great. The problem is, is that when you remove yourself from the world, you still have you. Understand? The sick, deranged, disillusioned mind that corrupts itself. And so we're not designed simply to have a relationship with God and then somehow remove ourselves from others. The goal is, is to pursue God and then to pursue relationship with others. And so that's what God is calling us to do. And as we pursue others, the goal is to, the same, to be known, to move from being isolated or marginalized to fully connected, to be fully known, to be fully loved. And what's a beautiful thing, and Tim Keller kind of gives you the idea, is to not simply be known and not loved, or to be fully loved and not known, it's to be fully loved and fully known. Do you see the difference? And so for so many of us, we were like, we, I want to be loved, but I don't, want you to, I don't want you to know me. For some of us in here, you're like, I don't want you to know me, but I want to be loved. You know what I mean? So it's this balance, but the question is, is what does it look like to take a step in which you are fully known but you're still fully loved. So that's a picture of a healthy marriage. That's a picture of real friendship is that you could go, I really am messed up. These are all my flaws. But to have someone love you in spite of that, that's the picture of God to his people. 
And so that's our step is connect to God and to others. Last week, we talked about what's it look like to connect and service, to be a part of what God's doing within the walls. And so it's to take a step to go, I'm going to be a part of the body. I'm going to hold up my portion of the wall, realizing that you can't hold up the whole wall, but you can hold up a portion of it. And so I think so many times, and uh, even in here in our lives, we felt like that the church depends on us. Like if I don't show up, then, I, then it's going to crumble. And here's the one thing that God taught me really early on here is whether I'm here on a Sunday or I'm gone, whether I'm actively participating, it does, like God doesn't need me to hold his church together. And quite frankly, as much as I love you, he doesn't need you. But he allows us to participate in the gospel with him in becoming the church. And there's so many of us that we think, man, the church would be lost without me. And I want you to understand that the church would find itself just fine without you. Because the one who governs and leads the church is not you or even me, but it's the God of the gospel. And so he wants us to be connected to it. And so he wants us to know him, to know others, to serve within the body. And get this, he wants us to make a move in looking outside of ourselves to other people. And I can't think of a better guy um, to use an illustration that did it wrong than a guy named Jonah. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Jonah. You can look in chapter 3. Uh, if you're kind of new to church, uh, Jonah is in the Old Testament. It's a little bitty book uh, from a guy that was named Jonah. And uh, he, he was a prophet of God. And he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily just a real faithful one. But he has nonetheless got a book. And in chapter 1, you're going to see that God's going to call this guy named Jonah to go. And he's going to encourage him to go speak to this nation of Assyria. And the capital city of Assyria was this place called Nineveh. It was the heart of, of, of this incredible land. And, and the Assyrians were, one, very, very strong people. And what I mean by that is that they could put their force on anyone. They were a very wicked, very vile people. In terms of military tactics, they were probably some of the most evil, corrupt the world has ever seen. The reason we have well, laws uh, in terms of warfare tactics are because of the people like Assyria. They didn't care what they would do to their adversaries. They were wicked. They were vile. They were pagans. And God raises up this guy named Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to him. And of course, like any great prophet who loves God and is fully known by God, they go, of course, God, whatever you say. No, no. Jonah runs. He goes, he pays a fare, he boards a boat, and he takes off. And he goes to a place called Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is literally the furthest west that Jonah believed he could go. It's the end of the known world at that time. And so he boards a boat, and he believes that I can outrun God. And that's his goal. He was to outrun God. And so chapter one of Jonah simply is this. You can run, but you won't outrun God. But he tries. And so nonetheless, he goes. Eventually, as you know, uh, he is boarding this boat. He's paid his fare. He's on his way. And then as he's on the boat, there's a huge storm that arises. Well, as he's down asleep, trying to somehow uh, remove himself from the situation he's in, they come into a great storm. And so the guys on the boat begin to get discouraged. They cast lots. Lots fall on Jonah. They bring Jonah up. And Jonah goes, yes, guys, I'm the problem. <laughs> If you want to fix the problem, get rid of me. Okay. <laughs> Toss him overboard. I mean, it was not a hard decision, okay? There's a, someone in your midst that's causing the judgment of God. Okay, let's just get rid of them. That's simple, right? Seems simple to me. That's what they do. They toss him overboard. 
Waves stop. Then here it comes, a big old huge fish swallows Jonah. And now here's, I get it. This is where the story for some of us begins to hit a collision course. Because we're like, okay, that's where I stop reading. This is good. Hear about a guy named Jonah. I get it. He's swallowed by a big fish, but I think it's not plausible. Therefore, I stop reading this book. And that's where so many people are. They're like, I can't read the story of Jonah because there's no way that a big fish swallowed a dude and he lived. So let me ask you this. What's more plausible? Jonah swallowed by a big fish or a guy named Jesus was dead for three days and then he rose again. Which honestly baffles me because at Easter, we'll raise our hands and sing. We'll like celebrate, oh, Jesus is alive. And we'll go to the God of the Old Testament and go, but I don't believe that you could use a fish to swallow a person. And so, like, if that's your hang-up, listen to me, you're not on step four of reaching people. You're not going to bust a move today where you're going to go and reach all your friends and tell them about the God of the Bible who swallowed a guy named Jonah. But what you may do is gather information and going, is God reliable and can he be trusted? Because if, if the well really did swallow him or this big fish swallowed him and then at the same time Jesus resurrected, then maybe I should listen to this story. Maybe I should see. And so here it is. He's swallowed by a big fish. At the end of chapter 2, he spit up the dry land, which brings us to chapter 3, where we'll start this narrative. And so in verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against this message that I tell you. Now, in chapter 2, you see a prayer of repentance from Jonah. Like, he clearly has a meeting with God. And so as he meets with God, he spit up to dry land. You see the graciousness of God in coming back to a guy who's run from him. Now, that's what's so incredible about the God of the Bible, is that he continues to pursue us even in our hard-headedness. Even in the times where we're obstinate against him, obstinate against the things that he wants to do in our lives, he just keeps pursuing us. And so he says, arise and go to Nineveh. And then in verse 3, Jonah says, after he arises and goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was exceedingly a great city, three days' journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so here it is. He goes into the city, which is a three-day breath. So what it meant was is they would take him about three days to get all the way through the city. The city was about 60 miles in width, probably had about half a million inhabitants. 500, 600,000 inhabitants is what we know that were most likely there. And so it takes him a great day or a great time to get through the city, but he goes a day. And, and what's the purpose of him going? The purpose of him going is to proclaim who God is but more than that, the message of God. And so what's the message of God? Well, that God is exceedingly great and he's coming after a pagan people. So you are wicked, you are vile, and God's gonna judge you. And so he goes into the city, how far? A day's journey. So he goes a day. So you know that he's not halfway through the city. He's literally a third of the way through the city. He's been preaching and this is what he's saying. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That, that's his message. You're wicked, you got 40 days to do something, and you're going to be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, they do something. They bust a move. They respond. Listen to me. The reason I preach is because I'm hoping one person in this room hears God's message, and you will take one step of obedience. You bust a move. That's the only reason I get up here. 
And matter of fact, it's the only thing that keeps me coming week in, week out. It's somebody coming up and going, I needed that message. That was for me. That is a preacher's dream. Not because we somehow intellectually came up with a good message, because quite frankly, I'm not convinced that this is the greatest message I could have preached today. But I am convinced that it is God's word and that he can use it for his purposes. And so that brings glory to my heart. And so here it is. His message is, you got 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. And then they bust a move. And listen, it's not just one person. It says here, all the people of Nineveh believed God. All of them. It seems like this incredible revival begins to spread. And here's the incredible thing, is that he's only a third of the way through the city. Like, it's not like everybody flocked to him. He is just going through. He's telling them to repent. 40 days are going to be destroyed. And it seems that everybody is beginning to spread this word. And they hear and they call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Wow. From the greatest to the least. And the word then reaches the king of Nineveh, which would be the greatest, right? And look at his response. And he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, let me explain something to you. If you were a king of Assyria, you do not remove your robes for any purpose other than sin. Because as a king of Assyria, the reason you have royalty is so that people come and bow down to you. Do you get this picture? And you don't see instances in the Bible very often where a king removes his royalty. Now, you will see an, an opportunity uh, where David, he removes his royalty and his robes, and he's going to dance the city in fine linen, white, and clean. And he does it because he is celebrating the Ark of the Covenant coming back into, for, in front of the people after it's been missing for over 90 years. And so he removes his royalty and his robes. Now, the reason you don't see that is because kings don't remove their robes. But the greatest king that you'll ever see remove their robes in the scriptures is not David, and it's not the king of Assyria, but it's King Jesus, who removed his robes, came as an incarnate baby, swaddled in what? Clothes, laying in a manger. He removed his robes to reconcile to what? You and me to God. Not many kings do this. And the king that created all things, according to Colossians 1, both for him, by him, He does it so that he can have a relationship with you. So nonetheless, he's preaching. He's encouraging people to repent from the greatest to the least. They are repenting. The king issues a proclamation, verse 7, publishes it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call uh, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? And then look at it. He gives them a question. What if we all turn? What if we all seek God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, with every ounce and every fiber of our being? What if we call on God and we all do it? Maybe, maybe he'll relent. Maybe, maybe he'll give us more than 40 days. That God would turn, relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, I want you to know, like, just historically, that it probably wasn't just the preaching of this guy, Jonah, because we already know that his heart's not going to be really in the right place. We're going to see that in a second, okay? But it could have been likely that 
there was definitely a, a plague and some disease that hit the land. Um, there was a solar eclipse uh, within, you know, 50 years of that time. Uh, there were enemies breathing down their necks, even at the point of this going on, within 100 miles of their walls. And so there were definitely some things, circumstances-wise, that were pointing to the king of Assyria, saying, you probably need to recognize who God is and his great power, that he could overthrow you at any point in time. But it was that, coupled with the word of the Lord from Jonah, that seemed to give repentance to the land. And so they respond. And then verse 10 says, and when God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil, God relented of the disaster that he, he was going to do to them, and he did not do it. Now catch this. That is every preacher's dream, and the book right there in my um, very, very small inkling of wisdom should end. What a great story. Wicked, nasty, vile people, Assyrians, they're wicked. They turn from their sin back to God. Wham, let's end it. Great story. Great literary style. The problem is, is God's not interested in literary style. He keeps going on. And so it brings you to chapter four. And so in chapter four, verse one, but it exceedingly displeased, displeased Jonah. And he was what? Angry. Okay, wait a second. Every preacher's dream is to preach a message for people to repent, respond, boss to move, and take a step towards God. He gets an entire city to do that, and he is ticked off about it. Mad. I mean, exceedingly mad. And, and the question is, is why? Like, why is he mad? And so verse 2, you see what he does. He prays the Lord, and he says, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I ran. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew who you were, God, and I knew the problem with me going. The problem with me going was not that these evil, corrupt people were going to hear me preaching and that they were going to crucify me and somehow kill me. He goes, I knew that there was a possibility, even a plausible scenario where they would hear the message, repent, and you would spare them of their wickedness. And God, I quite frankly, don't like it. Do you see what he's doing here? The reason he didn't go to Nineveh was not because he wasn't afraid. He, he didn't go to Nineveh because he didn't believe they were worthy of the God of the Bible. I mean, think about it. Here it is. This loyal Hesed Jew, one who was loyal to God in every aspect of his being, who kept the law, who was going to make sure that sacrifices were administered and that things were going right in his life, he believed that he had something that no one else had and, quite frankly, no one else deserved. And so he thought, I'm going to keep the God of the Bible to myself and to my people, and I'm certainly not going to go and preach a message to a bunch of Ninevites who get this, are going to destroy our people 100 years from now. No, not happening. I'm not doing it. And so he shakes his fist at the Lord. Verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me now, for it's better for me to die than to live. Literally, his prayer was, God, I know your character. I know that you are gracious and kind, that you're slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love. Now, if you don't mind, just go ahead and put a sword, thrust it through me. I am done. God, I do not care to be your messenger and take this news anywhere. Just kill me, bring me home. Whatever you're going to do, I am not going. 
And the question is why? Like, why is that? And here it is. It's because he had become judgmental, which I think is one of the greatest dangers for us within the church. See, the longer you come to know God, the more judgmental you begin to be against those who do not know God. Think about just in the last 10 days, the conversations that you've had. Can you believe that she's with that guy? Can you believe that he put that on Facebook? Can you believe that they seem to be doing this? I mean, can you watch what they're doing? And somehow in our mind, we have come to believe that we have somehow tapped into the God of the Bible who's patient, who's steadfast, who abounds in love and is slow to anger, and that we now have a lockdown on it and no one else is worthy of it. And the longer you begin to get this seem to grow in God, but be isolated, marginalized in your connection to him and people, the more judgmental you'll become. Do you understand what I'm saying? The more isolated and marginalized you are in your relationship with God, so you've got his grace, you believe you're going to heaven, you believe that he lives in you, you have all that locked down, but the more isolated you are in your relationship to him and others and your impact within the church, the more judgmental you'll be with people outside. And so here it was, a guy who had become judgmental, uh, judgmental seemed to say, I'm not doing this. I do believe that a large portion of it is because as a prophet of the Lord, he probably knew that 100 years from now, the people who repent in Assyria will actually be the same group of people that God uses 100 years later to overcome the northern kingdom. And so... There's a wickedness going on within the people of Israel, and God's going to use Assyria. What's interesting is, is it's 100 years after this great tide, this great turn. So the question then becomes, well, how long does it take before your fire seems to go out? Not long, does it? I mean, the thing that you're trying to pass on to the next generation could go out within 30 or 40 years from now. Do you see the point? And so here it is, the flame seems to have gone out uh, later on for these people, but they now are in repentance, and you've got God's trusted prophet, Jonah, who's mad. Verse 4, and the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Like, hey, what's the point, dude? You're looking foolish. You're silly. And look at his response. Yeah, I'm mad, and I do well to be angry. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, set east of the, uh, of the city, and made a booth for himself. He sat under the shade till he would what see what would become of the city. So yes, he goes, yes, I do very well to be angry. I already said you can kill me, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave the city. So it almost gives the picture that he went in part of the city, did his deal, 40 days, repent, and then he walks right back out, and he's set up on the East Hill, and he watched. And here's what he was watching for. Maybe somehow God will bring some crazy fire down on these people like Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'll get to watch. It would please me greatly to get to see these evil people burn. That's his heart, the prophet of God. Now it makes you feel better about yourself, doesn't it? You're like, I'm so glad I came today, man. I'm not Jonah. And so here it is. He sits under the shade tree outside of the city waiting for the destruction of these people. And then now the Lord appointed a plant and it made up come over Jonah, verse 6, that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So here it is. This guy who's searching for comfort is now uncomfortable. 
And so God gives him a plant and he makes him comfortable. It reduces shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And now you see his response. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Underline it. It's the only time in the entire four chapter narrative that he's happy. Seriously, the only time, the only time that he is happy is when he's comfortable. Now, let me ask you a question. Could I stop this message and just preach right there? I could do a whole message series, not just a Sunday, a message series on about your comfortability and my comfortability. Because as long as we're comfortable, I'm good. As long as you don't have leaders pushing you, you're good. As long as you don't have people calling you to be a part of something bigger yourself, we're good. Like, we just want to be comfortable, right? Like, we think about it, truly. And this is me too. I love the fact that God gave his son for me. I love the fact that it was a free gift. I love the fact that I don't have to work to acquire it. I love the fact that there's nothing about me that deserves it. I love the fact that I can embrace that gift and ultimately eternal life for me is now secured. That there is no uh, spoiling or perishing. It's a hope that I can grab onto forever. That regardless of what I do from this day forward, it's, it's sealed, it's signed, it's delivered. But the more I get to know him, the more I don't necessarily want to do some things for him. The more I become comfortable, the problem for me is looking outside of myself. Because don't you just love the idea of you and God and a handful of people that you get along with? Like, isn't that awesome? I mean, think about that. God, I'm, I love comfortability. And so here it is. He loves comfortability. The problem is the next day, his circumstance changed. Look at it. God appoints a worm that attacks a plant, and it withers. Now, here's the deal. His happiness is for one day, which is why I want you to understand that your feelings cannot be trusted. And you think about this. Every time you start a sentence about you, your relationship with God, and your people, and his people, this is how you start it. I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. Or I feel like, I'm tired. I don't feel like it. Your feelings cannot be trusted. They never have and they never will. Why? Because our feelings change day to day based off of the circumstances. This guy who wants the people of Assyria to burn in front of him, with circumstance, it changes and now he's happy. It seems that his, his sorrow has now been turned into what? Gladness. But no, not at all. Because why? His circumstance changed within one 24-hour period. And now look, he's back at it. He's mad again. And so verse 8, the sun rose. God appointed a scorching. He sweat. Sun beats down on the head of Jonah as he was faint. And he asked the Lord that he might die. God, would you please just kill me? It is far better for me to die than to live. Like he is adamant of that. Like God thrust a sword through me. I am done. And see, here's the deal. He doesn't even see it, which is the greater problem. When you're marginally disconnected or isolated, you don't even see it. You just don't get it. Like, here's what he believes. I'm a loyal, hessed Jew. I am God's chosen person. I am a prophet of God. I am instructed to preach. I have preached. I am done. And he sees himself not as a faithful servant, but as a loyal patriot. He would just assume be on the front lines of the northern kingdom 
and say, thrust a sword for me and through me because I would rather die than to live and be a part of these corrupt people. So he doesn't see the error of his ways. Like he doesn't see a problem. He is just saying, God, I knew who you were and I know who I am and I'm okay to be this. Just thrust a sword through me. Take me on out of this misery. And so he's uncomfortable, he's mad, he's angry, and he sees himself as a patriot from God. He sees himself as a person of Israel, the elect people of God, and he goes, and they don't need any part of this. And with the great literary style that there is, you see what happens. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh? the great city of which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left. See, he's going to make a statement, but here's what he makes a statement off of. He makes a statement off of verse 10 because now he's angry and he wants to die, verse 9, and he's angry at what? The plant. So he's angry at the plant. He's well to be angry and not angry enough to die. That's verse 9. Then verse 10 says, the Lord goes, and you pity the plant? Like, you, you pity the plant. Like, you are upset that the plant died. By the way, it's a gourd, which is a weed. And what's incredible is, is that he's not angry because he planted this garden and there was no rain. He's not angry because he toiled and labored and it just didn't produce a harvest. He's angry, and he had nothing to do. He didn't plant it. He didn't water it. He didn't make it grow. He's just a lazy, slothful servant, but he's mad when all of it comes crashing down. What did you do? And the Lord says, you didn't make it grow. You had no contribution to it. You didn't make it live, and you're not in control when it dies. And then he flips it on him on verse 11. That's why he goes, and so can I not pity a city? So if you're going to take a minuscule weed, a gourd, and pity it upon its death, then do I not have the right to pity a city? And then look what he does. He, he pulls at his feelings because his feelings can't be trusted, but somehow maybe God goes, well, hey, if you're going to be about emotions and feelings, then let me speak to those. If you want something that pulls your heartstrings, then let me speak to those. And he does. And he goes, what about the great city and where there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So what he says is, he goes, Jonah, I get it. You don't like the mommies and daddies. You don't like granddaddies and grandmas. They're evil. They're despicable. They're sinful. They're arrogant. They're prideful. You, get, you want them gone. I get it. But, Joan, what about the 120,000 infants that don't know their right hand from the left? Joan, what about them? Do they, do they deserve a chance? Should I just blot out the whole city and destroy all these infants that don't know better? They don't know even their right hand from the left. Hey, Jonah, what about dogs? You want me just to wipe it all out? I mean, you want to wipe out their sheep and their cattle? I mean, do you want me just to do it all? And then the incredible literary style of this book ends it right there with that question. Done. Done. What? Lord. Done. The most frustrating book in the Bible for me. Done. I'm being serious. Done. I mean, you don't get to see how he responds. It's just he appeals to his heartstrings done. But I think it's fitting. I really think it's fitting for us. The question is, is this. God says, Jonah, what are you concerned about? A plant? 
a plant. I'm, I'm concerned about plants. It's hot. I'm hot. I want to go home. Awesome. Jonah, you concerned about anything else? Nope. A plant. It's hot. I want to go home. And if you're not going to give it to me, just kill me, please. I'm done. Brandon, what are you concerned about? My family, my amenities, my land, my cattle, comfortable life, a church where all the sheep do what they're supposed to. <laughs> Come on, Lord, please. Comfort. So it brings the question, what are you concerned about? Are we concerned about the things that God's concerned about? I mean, think about your neighbors. Think about the single mom that just desperately needs help. Think about the broken families. The, the marriages are on the brink of failing. Think about students in our school districts. From Wills Point to Canton to Edgewood to uh, to Grand Saline, to Terrell, even Kaufman. We've got kids in all of those districts that come here. What about them? What about their families? Are we concerned about them? What about the person you hate the most? What about the person you hate the most? This is the most despicable person that Jonah could see. He hates them. And I'll tell you, when God called me back to this community, I hate it. I truly hated it. I hated it. I hated the people. I hated the roads. I was hurt. I had seen things happen to my family that I didn't believe were just. There were things that happened to me that were not true and were lies and were not fair and unjust. And the Lord says, you're coming back here. And if you don't, no one else will. And I remember sharing that with Kelly. And I remember her sitting in the front seat of our car. And I remember her just breaking out and just weeping. I don't want to go, Brandon. I remember that. And I hope I appeal to your heartstrings. Because there were 13 people who committed with me to do this. And I didn't do it for the church person sitting in the seat. I did it for these people that I hated. I did it for people I didn't get along with. And that's why I'll continue to do it in spite of my selfishness. And so this, this message is probably more about me reminding myself than it is about reminding you. And so I just ask you, like, what are you living for? And what are you concerned about? Are, are you living for Christ? Is that the goal? Because that should be the goal. And if you live for Christ, and get this, you ought, to, you ought to connect to other people. And I'm talking not just within the walls, but outside of them. You ought to be inviting friends and family. Like Our growth here should never get stagnant. And it has. In the last year and a half, we have finally hit the point where in our volunteer base, it's become stagnant. And people inviting, it's become stagnant. Like we have finally hit it. 
for years we were wondering how do we just how do we keep up the ball like rolling how, how, how we're just barely staying in front of ourselves and it felt like Indiana Jones and the the crusade this ball coming at us and we're just slowly running almost feel like it's going to overcome us and that's finally stopped and so now we're we're wondering how do we get the ball back moving that was such an enjoyable time you're trusting God how do we get the ball going again and I believe that it's when we look outside of ourselves and we see the great need of the gospel still in this county and then these people. And so I encourage you, would you please look outside of yourself? Look outside of your own walls, your walls of your family. Look outside of the walls of this, this church. Look to ways that you can be involved in people's lives, even your worst enemy. Look how you can see God reconciled. So there's a variety of ways. You can start with some of our strategic partners. I mean, you can start by mentoring um, within a school district or being a part of men and women of honor program. And you can start by being a part of Hope Pregnancy Resource Center. You can start by just your neighbor right next to you. And so the goal is not to get you busy. The goal is just to get you to looking like, God, where are you at work and how do I join you there? The goal is to look at families in need. Look at the single mom who they just need an extra $100 bill this month. Look at the families who their, their marriage is broken and they just want a, an hour with you. They just would love to see what a, a healthy date, like, date night looks like. That's all that they just want a little bit of your time. They just want a little bit of your energy. Look outside of yourself. Ask God, what are you doing and how do I join you there? And listen, guard yourself against looking inward because the more that you seem to be connected to God and others, the more satisfied we become with just being there. Think about it, your journey group. The goal of a journey group is not to stay together forever. It's not. Look outside of yourself. If you're going to be gospel-minded, look outside of yourself. I'm not encouraging you to go, by any means to go and blow your journey group up and start a new one. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying look outside of yourself. How do we... How do we be a part of a greater mission and vision than our own selves? Remove yourself from the comfortable lifestyle in which we have. Matter of fact, that's the reason that many people right now are coming here. Why? They want a comfortable lifestyle that you and I have acquired. Problem is, is it's not gospel-driven or centered. And I fight against it as much as you do. And so may we be compelled and called to not be a Jonah. Because as inspiring as we think the story is, we never get to see his genuine response. I want to believe that because God allowed it to be included in the scripture, that he responded in a way that pleased God. I really believe that. Most historians and even commentators would suggest that he did respond in a way um, that pleased the Lord. But who knows? And so may I just end with this question. How will you respond and would you please know that I genuinely love you? God has taken my hatred and he's turned it into a joy for people here in this community. He's allowed us to build a home here, which means we are planting roots here. It means that we're committed to the call here. Like our goal is not to somehow upsize. It's not somehow go and become a mega pastor. Although some of you go, well, I think we're already a mega church. No, we're not, Okay. We're church about community and relationships, and we may grow large. The more we grow large, the goal is to keep growing smaller. And we're not interested in becoming the largest church. We are interested, and hear this, in becoming the most committed church. And if the commitment is too much, we love you, but this is probably not the right place. 
Because I never, ever, ever want you to allow me to get stagnant in my faith. And if you ever feel me pressing you, it's because I don't want you to grow stagnant in yours. Because there's too much at stake outside of ourselves. There's too much at stake. And I need you. So I love you. And I'm going to pray us out of here in spite of my sissiness, okay? So, um, God, do something with this. Stir our hearts that only you can. Speak to our emotions, God, if that's what, if that's what has to happen. Lord, but help us to know that tomorrow our emotions that we feel today won't be there tomorrow. It, we won't feel the same way tomorrow that we feel today. And so, God, would you go deeper than that and speak to our convictions, which is what I truly believe you spoke to with Jonah. I think you pulled his heartstrings in the very end of chapter Four, but I think ultimately, God, you struck to the very core of his being in which he realized and knew that you are a God that's gracious and that you abound in steadfast love. And there are people who need to know you. And so, God, I pray that you would call us to that. Help us look outside of ourselves. We love you. We commission you. And, God, we ask, God, that you would bless us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, have a great week of worship. You're dismissed.